0: So um, Billy told me you had been uh, talking about the Heart Sutra and talking about emptiness because it was a a core concept, which is absolutely correct. Um, I think the first time that I came to this group I mentioned it some, talked about that. Um, One of my all time favorite quotes was from Ginjo Kowan by Master Dogen. Study the way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be enlightened by all things. And that's basically another way of talking about emptiness. So, um, to talk about the word, um, we have to be careful in English because emptiness has a lot of connotations. It can be some kind of nihilist kind of negative, kind of uh, nothing matters, nothing counts, you know, know, that aspect of emptiness. And that's certainly not what we're talking about, so we want to be careful. So let's examine it a little bit more fully, and you you may have already covered this in your discussions, so please let me know if I'm repeating, but you know, the, the first and easiest example is looking at a cup the functionality of a cup is in its emptiness. That you can fill it with something, right? Have you covered this metaphor already in discussions? Somewhat, yeah. Somewhat, okay. Well, it's, it's uh, you know, just because you've heard it before, it doesn't make it any less valid. You know, and we can expand that metaphor into the modern era with disk space, hard drives. You know, how useful is your computer when it's full? It has to be, um, somewhat empty to function, and when it gets too full, it loses a lot of its functionality in terms of ongoing functionality. You as university students, you have a certain emptiness to be filled you know, with all this, these wonderful options for, for knowledge that you have at the university. You can look at emptiness as potential, and emptiness is a space that can be filled. And When you look at it that way, it's, it's a far different thing from the nihilist point of view. Okay, and and rather than go on with with many more uh, examples and metaphors like that, you know, Billy asked me if I had some kind of a personal story, <laughs> and actually, he asked at a very good time. I uh, just came back a couple of weeks ago from my son's wedding. Um, I may have mentioned my children before. I have a a 26 year old daughter and a a 23 year old son. And my daughter got married last year and my son got married just a couple of weeks ago in the mountains of North Carolina. We had a, a gorgeous weekend for it. And as you can imagine, a wedding is a very, very busy time for lots and lots of people. Certainly for the bride and groom, but also for other relatives being, you know, the the parent of one of them. Uh, Last year father of the bride, this year father of the groom. It's kind of busy. There are things you need to do that you're traditionally responsible for. Um, So it was easy to kind of get wrapped up in that. And it was also very easy to get wrapped up in the parental role um and and start thinking about all the judgments that come to mind and I'll be very honest with a couple of judgments that came to mind regarding my son and it was like oh he's too young you know he should, he, he needs to, to live a little bit more and get to know himself before he becomes a couple and and um and another one was um uh, he, he hasn't finished his studies yet. He hasn't gotten his degree, and he needs to—he needs to focus on that, so he can be, a, you know, so he can have a secure job and blah 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 blah. And, and please don't take these as any sage advice. <laughs> what I was doing was applying my life onto him. I got married young, and I thought it was a mistake. <laughs> it ended in divorce, you know, and I. Uh, finished my degree and got a job for, And I'm not even being consistent in applying my judgments because one of those was the wrong thing to do, so don't make that mistake. And the other one's the right thing to do. You know, I, I did it that way, so you should do it that way. And if it wasn't those two issues, it would have been something else. That's what the parental mind does. That's what the human mind does, is we find problems to fix. And that's very good for survival, You know, it's, (laughs) you know, how do I find food, how do I find shelter, how do I find security? I mean, that's great. But if you get really, really wrapped up in that, you can't take in anything else. And what I noticed is that when I was really wrapped up in, in my judgments and my stuff, I wasn't enjoying very much. When I let go of those things, when I when I quit being so wrapped up in myself, when I emptied myself of myself and looked up and saw the bride and groom smiling at each other, it was just incredible. They were so happy. All my judgments just kind of went, you know, (laughs) those are my problems, not their problems, Um, and. That that made the point very clear to me that when I let go of myself, when I emptied myself of myself, of my attachments and my judgments, I was so much more happy for myself, which which is great. But also, I was more fully present for them as the father, as the father-in-law, to be as you know the the planner for the rehearsal dinner or for the you know the relative greeting other relatives we haven't seen for a while. And that brings me back to the line in the Heart Sutra where it says, emptiness is form. Form is emptiness. Emptiness is form. On the one hand, I was letting go of my personal form, my role as father and, and you know, making these judgments and all that. I was emptying myself. But in so doing, I could more fully be in the relationships with everybody else. And that was just the form of father or father-in-law or you know, the, the relative or whatever. And to me, I don't, I don't know if these words are making any sense, but that very clearly demonstrated the emptiness is form dichotomy. I could be more fully present for them when I, when I let go of myself, when I emptied myself. And I have uh, a further example of that. It's a kind of a, an unfortunate, negative example. In my daughter's wedding the year before, a very close family member was extremely wrapped up in, you know, the way a wedding should be, and you must do this and you must do that. And for for like a year, from the planning, the early planning stages to to the minute before my daughter went down the aisle. This person brought her to tears. Um, that absorption in the self created a lot of pain, to the extent that that person, who was equally close to my son, was not invited, was specifically uninvited to his wedding, which I'm sure was was painful for that person. It was painful for everybody else, but the judgment was that it was less painful than than having them attend. So that's kind of an example of the opposite of, you know, letting go of yourself, um, emptying yourself of yourself can open you up more, that clinging very, very tightly to yourself, and in that case, extremely tightly, leads to you being isolated from the people that you love, and and, and in that example. So, that experience of those two weddings, to my mind, is a very good example of what it means to practice emptiness um, and what it can do for you. So, just to kind of wrap it up, in my mind, Emptiness is potential. Potential to do pretty much anything. And then once, once you've done that, you have to be careful not to cling to it because then you've lost that potential. It's a continual process. Do you remember how I talked in a previous talk about playing with nouns and verbs turn nouns into verbs once in a while. Look at emptying. I, I see this as a continual emptying process. There's value in, in filling yourself with, with knowledge, with experience, with uh, empathy, with compassion, or whatever. But if you take any one particular situation, it's like, oh, I did this, and this was really great, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hold on to it. because I want to continue to enjoy that. Well, then you're no longer empty and you can't enjoy or appreciate or fully participate in other things. So I look at it in the verb form of emptying continually, going back to, and you hear phrases like beginner's mind. You hear that phrase often in Zen. That's one of the things it refers to, be open to new understanding. You heard the, uh, the story about the teacup. That maybe I told that one. Um, so, no. Okay. So I, I never can remember all the names in these stories, but there was once uh, a great philosopher, academic, who went to visit a Zen master. And the philosopher, you know, they sat down to have tea, and the, and the academic said, "You know, I'm here to to see what you have to say about Zen. You know, explain this to me." And the Zen master calmly sits and starts pouring him some tea. So very civilized, have tea first. And he pours and the cup fills up and he keeps pouring and the cup overflows. just just keeps pouring, keeps overflowing. And the academic says, "You you fool, what are you doing? You know, the cup is full. And the Zen master says, like this cup, your mind is full and cannot absorb anything else until you empty it which is, you know, one of those pithy little stories that, that make the point. Um, so it's, it's, a, it's a process. You know, you, you're not striving to sit and be empty all the time. And you don't want to be so wrapped up in one particular thing that, that you're not open to anything else. It's, it's a continual flow of being open to everything, experiencing it, and letting go. And doing that over and over again. So the question then becomes, well, okay, well, that sounds good, or I hope it sounds good. How do we do that? Well, one thing is to be aware of the teachings and the value of doing that. And the other thing is is practicing. And the, Zen, the answer in Zen, and in much of Buddhism, is very often the same. It's in meditation. That's what we're practicing in meditation. We're open. Don't You can't tell your mind not to think. It's going to think. You're open to it. And then as they come, you recognize it, experience it, and let it go. And you do that again and again and again and again. And So you get used to experiencing and letting go and being open to the next thing. That, that actually does train your mind, like practicing some physical exercise trains your body. It trains your mind so that when you're in a wedding, as I was, it was easier for me to see. Oh, yep, there it comes again. I'm, I'm being the judgmental father, and you know what? Everybody else is having a good time. If I just let go of that, I can relax and enjoy the, participate in the joy of the bride and groom as well. So that's why we stress the meditation. It's that simple exercise that helps you practice that letting go in daily life. So that's all I have to say about emptiness. Do you have any questions?
1: It seemed like a different type of emptiness than what... Technically, that Billy showed um, He was talking how everything arises from this interconnectedness. Yeah, mm-hmm. Did the two relate, mm-hmm. or am I missing something?
0: Yes, absolutely. Um, you're talking about, uh, and I can't remember. I think in his books, I've seen both interdependent co-origination, and I think one of his favorite words is interbeing. Yeah and he uses the example of a piece of paper that's full of non-paper elements. Um, and that's an absolutely valid explanation and model and, and one of the reasons that I didn't, didn't discuss that is because you've probably heard that before. And it doesn't hurt I think to see things from different angles. And I was looking at it from a more personal point of view but just as um he talks about looking at a piece of paper for those of you who haven't heard it, maybe or did you discuss it in the group? You played a clip of played it. It. Oh, you played a clip of it. Okay. So the point is if you if you look at it very closely, its composition is all of things other than paper. The paper is its is its definition is its use, but you know, um, you, you may decide not to use it to write on. You might roll it up and use it to start a fire. Or you might fold it into a paper airplane or, or something. You know, It's only a convention that it is what it is that we, that we call it and we have a common understanding of what it could be. But its composition is of other things. And without any of those other things it couldn't exist as it is. And I was trying to apply that to a personal level and maybe I wasn't being very clear about that in terms of when I look at myself I'm comprised of, of different roles and responsibility and, and and knowledge that I've accumulated and skills that I've accumulated and some that that you know I forget some things I, I lose skills that I don't practice relationships change um, so I see it as being very similar that Randy is composed of a lot of non-randy elements. I am interbeing with with many 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 other things. And if I try to focus on my abstract definition of Randy, what Randy is, like a definition of a sheet of paper, then I'm losing the connection with all those other things. I mean is that is that kind of a
1: definition of Randy yet, yeah, then...
0: okay. So and and to bring it back to the story I, I was talking about before, that definition of randy is when I feel that I should be making these judgments about the way things should be. You, you know, instead of just being yeah, being attached to my definition of me. Because, of course, I'm his father. I know what's right. <laughs> and boy, if you ever listens to this, I'm <laughs> in trouble. <laughs> um, and I was focusing more on the experience of it. More than the definitions of of interbeing. I was trying to look at how it affects us in our daily life. I was strongly affected by the realization that it had a very different impact on my life how I approached that wedding or other experiences, whether I focused on me or whether I focused on others. It was just... and I was hoping that that example would uh, resonate because it it just struck me so, so... Strongly, you know, when I looked up at that, that my son and his bride, that they were just so incredibly happy. You know, why should I be wrapped up in my little thoughts when, when that was going on? I could just—it was just wonderful to to be open to that, um, to be open to my non-Randy elements you know let them let me let them tell me what the role of father should be or father-in-law should be you know it's like be open to what you <coughs> what can i do you know i don't know if that that brings it close enough to the Nhat tom, tom, tom type. To, uh, no, to no 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 make your, your your story any less significant i just oh, no, no, see no. The, it, it's the, it's so it's, a, it's a deep deep principle and and there are many many different ways to look at it and many different ways to to experience it and try to explain it. So, that mine may make no sense to you, you know. So you don't know, talk, go to other retreats as you did, you know, talk. Thich Nhat Hanh is a wonderful teacher and and uh, I think that's one of the things that, that you need to do is find what resonates for you. We're each different, you know. My stories may leave you cold and then somebody else is like, wow, you know. that." And you'll see that. See, some teachers are, they always have personal stories, and some are very analytical, and, and I don't mean that in a bad way. You know, different people resonate with each one. So, I was trying to give a different approach than what you might have already heard. Anything else?
1: One way it works for me is um uh, I don't want to say it's like a rejection of there's this platonic ideal of paper or that it's rejecting the existence of what well, we'd all agree is a sheet of paper there. But uh, it emphasizes that what that it is to you at the moment is based on your state line. It could be a piece of paper, it could be an airplane and be king. Uh And I use that to remember to say like a, from a bad movie and you know, doing chores at home one, like hate or the dishes while I'm liking the dishes. That's one very valid way of saying I'm doing dishes. But you can just as easily think, well, I have money to buy food to feed my family, and that's one of your dishes because we're sitting to dinner. So it's really a, a good reminder that state of mind counts for a lot.
0: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Being open to other perspectives, not being, you know, again, not not being trapped in one particular perspective. Uh, and again, back to uh, Thich Nhat Hanh. He has lots of lovely stories about, um, you know, I'm so happy today. I don't have a toothache, you know. <laughs> you know, so many things that could be that aren't or, you know, gee, you know, I, I uh, burned dinner tonight, you know, but I had a glass of wine, you know, with dinner and I was able to have dinner and, you know, we have dessert or whatever. I'm just so fortunate. Compared to many, didn't yeah, burn it's, down the house didn't burn down the <laughs> house, yeah. So it's all a, a matter of perspective and how you um, choose to look at it. And I don't mean that in in a Pollyanish is the right Pollyanna-ish sense, but just being aware that there are other perspectives and being open to others' perspectives and just playing with them once in a while. That's when I. One of the you know people ask you you know what do you what do you what do you treasure in your in your girlfriend your boyfriend your spouse your partner or whatever. And when I talk, my wife doesn't necessarily find this terribly flattering but I said she doesn't let me get away with anything. She's this incredibly clear sharply focused mirror, and you know whenever I try to start. Getting on my high horse and expressing some opinion, usually about politics or something. You know, she nails me. She'll nail me with something that she knows that that I feel to be true or important. She'll say, But you know, what about this? You know, so she's really good about showing me that other perspective. Yes. Anything else?
1: I kind of like to think of emptiness from a, uh, well, I guess I'm probably one of those more analytic people. But um, I like to think of it from a cognitive philosophy sort of perspective. Like, the way I see the way the brain works is um, it's always drawing lines and forming categories and trying to do things in a world conform to ideas. But it's like when you see a rainbow, for example, the mind puts those lines between the colors. They're not really there. They're actually perfectly merging into each other. But the mind doesn't have to have differences it creates lines between them. And so the fundamental reality of the rainbow is that there is no structure in the way that you think there are no lines between those colors. Just like in real life, there are no these don't really fit into categories or um, thoughts or ideas perfectly. So I kind of think of emptiness as like the reality of the world. It is devoid of ideas. The things that we project upon it don't really exist. And if we want to be pragmatic about our own ideas, we mm-hmm. to constantly, like, just like you guys were saying, constantly adapt and constantly change and be open.
0: That's a very good point about the the categorization and the labeling that the mind does automatically. It's a very useful tool many many times, but we have to be careful not to confuse the label with the thing that we're sticking the label onto. It is inherently what it is. It is empty of red and blue and and green. It just is a continuous spectrum and even those words may be a slightly better description, but it's still only a label, and we need to sometimes just stop and empty our minds of the, the labeling and just experience it. Right. Anything else? Okay, well, thank you very much.